for the past, how many weeks is it we've been looking at 1 Corinthians? It's a lot. Three months? Four months? More than that. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> we are, we're hitting the pause button for a few weeks, and we are kicking off a new series today, looking at the ministry, the mission, if you like, of Elijah and Elisha. And that's going to be taken from some chapters, I think 1 Kings 17 through about 2 Kings 13. We're not doing all of it, so it's not quite a series in the book of Kings, but we are looking at Elijah and Elisha. And the reason we're doing that is that as we're preparing for 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, we want to get a bit of a background into Old Testament prophecy. What is it? What's it about? What's it for? And Old Testament uh, signs and wonders and miracles. And so hopefully, this, this, this 12, maybe 13-week series in 1 Kings is going to be preparatory for what comes next. Uh, I didn't bring my little clicker. So, one of, one of the things that we do as Christians is read the Old Testament with messianic expectation. So you're aware that in Genesis, after Adam and Eve sin and fall and the curse of God is proclaimed, that God makes a promise, doesn't he? He promises that this one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And immediately, what happens? Cain is born, right? And uh, Eve says, I've brought forth a man with the help of God. And we're wondering, is this the promised head crusher? And the answer is no, he crushes his brother Abel instead. And so throughout the Old Testament, we have this building expectation. Noah, is he going to be the one? The days are evil. He's a, a righteous man, delivered through the flood. And he ends up naked in the tent, passed out drunk, and we're back to square one again. And so over and over again, Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, will this be the one? And you know that that, that, that expectation just builds, and unfortunately, so does the disappointment with each successive cycle. In the book of Judges, we find that, so Israel has now come into this promised land and we're wondering, is this Eden again, finally? Are we back here? Is, you know, is Caleb maybe going to be the one? And the answer is no. Um, we, at the book of, in the chapter one of Judges, we read that Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of the land as they were commanded to that Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, that Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, that Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, and the inhabitants of Sidon, take, take note. <laughs> the, the conquest of the land is incomplete, and we're left with this devastating thought. What, what next? Have the promises of God failed? David and Solomon come along, and... Israel is at its height, perhaps. <laughs> Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, <laughs> and Hittite women from the nations, uh, and in verse, oh, yeah, verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely when they turn away your heart, they will turn your heart away from uh, after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. Skip to verse 5, 1 Kings 11. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. 
and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So the kingdom is divided after David, uh, after Solomon. North, we have the kingdom of Israel with its capital of Samaria. And south, we have Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. And notice Tyre and Sidon. These are two city-states of Phoenicia. 1 Kings 16, we're now picking up where we're situated this morning. In the 38th year of the king of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned in Israel, over Israel, in Samaria, 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he's another idolater, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. This is a picture of present-day Sidon. It's still a great city in Lebanon today. The Sidonians were, um, part, as I said, a city-state of Phoenicia, Phoenicia quite a powerful trading empire. They had fleets of ships that ruled the Mediterranean. And here we have the king of Israel, instead of devoting to destruction these people whom God had devoted to destruction, he marries one. We presume in military alliance to try and stave off this invasion from the Assyrians in the north. As, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. It's Solomon all over again. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And here we've got some pictures of um, bronze and stone artifacts from the Department of Oriental Antiquities in the, in the Louvre. This is Baal, at least Baal Hadad, is going to talk a little bit more about Baal Hadad in his sermon. We read on in 1 Kings 16, and Ahab made an Asherah. So we're presuming this is an Asherah pole. We don't really know what they look like. They're made of wood, and wood doesn't survive thousands of years terribly well. <laughs> We've got modern reconstruction on the left, and a relief of a, oh, no, sorry, not a relief, a sculpture of Ashtaroth, or Astarte is her Greek name. Also, oh, this, this one from the uh, 9th century, sitting in the British Museum today. And this is uh, another one of those city-states, Tyre. The king, Ethbaal, uh, would have reigned from here in Tyre. He was, interestingly, a priest of Ashtaroth before he became king. So Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. So the stage is set. We have evil King Ahab on the throne. We've got Jezebel, the wicked queen behind him, and the so-called gods, the Baals uh, of the Canaanites and Phoenicians. The question is, who is the true God? Who will prevail in the contest to come? Um, how will God save? And most importantly, what does this teach us about Jesus, the promised Messiah to come? How will we live as citizens of his kingdom. We're going to sing one more song and then we're going to read 1 Kings 17.
So please, if you've got a Bible with you, um, turn to 1 Kings 17, 1 to 7. And in the Blue Bibles, it's on page 170. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. And we move to chapter 18, starting at verse 1. After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath out of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and Ahab to- and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Thank you, Beth. Well, how about we pray as we approach this passage this morning? Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of you, 
the holy God, the one, the only. And so as we come to your word this morning, as we seek to have open hearts, open ears, open minds to hear what you have to say, may your spirit be at work in every single one of us. Speak to us, Lord, and may we not leave this place the same, but once again changed, renewed, further sanctified by you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've recently had uh, a bit of a rat problem in our house. So far, the total is about eight. And uh, to deal with them, I've needed to put some rat sack out, which is a type of bait that rats eat, and then it activates when they go and drink some water, and it kills them. So it's an effective way of dealing with them, but the only problem with it compared to having a rat trap is that you don't know where they're going to die. It could literally be anywhere. Uh, now, I've, I've had pictures over the last couple of weeks, but this morning I will spare you that. All right. One night, a, a few weeks ago, when our family sat down to have dinner outside, Robin's super-sensitive pregnant nose picked up a scent. And now, thankfully, it wasn't too strong, so it didn't actually ruin our dinner. Uh, but we knew that if we wanted to continue to enjoy meals in the same place, that we would have to deal with that dead rat, that we'd need to find it and get rid of it. Now, if we wanted to, you know, we probably could have uh, just sprayed some air freshener or, uh, you know, turned the fans up really high so that we could still have, you know, that would have done a little bit to get rid of the smell. But as you know, I'm sure, if you don't get rid of the source of the smell, then it ain't going away. Well, this morning's passage is going to consider the source of something far worse and something far more serious than just a bad smell. And that is the source of life's troubles. Where do you think trouble comes from in your life? What is the source of your troubles in life? Well, as we uh, go through this passage, let's have our Bibles open as we walk through it and consider God's Word before us. And a good place to begin is point one. There's only one God. There's only one God. Well, before we even get into our story this week, there's one thing that we should note, which is, who is our main character Elijah, that's right, I'm glad the mother of Elijah managed to pick that up. <laughs> Elijah, does anybody here know what his name means? Once again, the mother of Elijah, what does it mean? Uh, Yahweh, is Yahweh is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. The capitalized Lord in our English translations is not referring to the general meaning of the term Lord, but to the name of God, Yahweh. That's why it's capitalized in our English transla translations to, to draw attention to that. And so the Jah in Elijah comes from the Yah in Yahweh. And the Yah sound, but the Jah spelling, uh, is also in our word Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Uh, and that refers also to Yahweh. Hallelujah means uh, Yahweh be praised. And the Eli in Elijah's name means God. And so Elijah's name means the Lord, Yahweh, is God. Well, that is uh, quite the name to have as our main character for the next few weeks. And in the context of this passage, it strikes a very intentional, a very clear note, doesn't it? We've just heard uh, how King Ahab is the most evil of all the kings so far in Israel, and and they've had some terrible ones. And yet here he is, doing more evil than any other king before him. And Israel's major problem is kings who continue to abandon God's commandments and turn to worship idols. Instead of worshipping God, they are worshipping false gods. And so Elijah's name, before he even says anything, it tells us where this story is headed, doesn't it? There is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. He is the Lord. You know, these days, uh, we're all about dramatic tension in our stories, right? Uh, So no one likes it when one team in sport is too dominant, if they are, you know, whatever sport you play, five goals ahead, 78 points ahead, whatever it might be, if they're, just, if they're, if they're way too, too far in front, you know, people just leave the game. As soon as they know that there's no contest, they're like, ah, this is boring. In the same way, you know, these days, people don't like Superman as a superhero because he has no flaws except kryptonite. And, that, you know, it's, it's like they added that in later just to make sure that he's... You know, people don't like the fact that Superman is so unbeatable. And so now we, we have TV shows and, and movies that are coming out to show that superheroes have these you know, moral dilemmas and they've got weaknesses and things like that. And mostly I think it's just because people don't want superheroes to be so perfect. We want them to be like us, to have the same kinds of flaws. We, we don't like the idea of beings who are superior to us as humans. Well, the Bible certainly has dramatic tension in its storytelling in many places. But one thing you will never see in it, that's the Lord not being God. If you want a contest or a fair fight or some kind of indicator that, you know, maybe God is just like us and flawed and and perhaps maybe he might might get beaten, you're not going to find that in the Bible. The Lord, Yahweh, is God and there is no other. And there is no other that can match him, that can beat him, that can even contest against him. And this is evident even from the first verse. Why? Well, let's read verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives... Before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This verse sets the stage for everything that we are about to read. Baal, whom we just heard, Braden mentioned, uh, he's mentioned in the previous chapter. Uh, the, ter- the word Baal was actually used as a term that basically just meant master. And so it came to be used as a, as a general term for, for gods. Uh, that's why later on in chapter 18... Uh, we hear Elijah say, the Baals, plural. But it was also used, and it is mostly used in the Old Testament, to refer to a specific God, 
as a proper name. As Again, as Braden mentioned, this God that, that the Old Testament is most likely referring to is Hadad. And you'll never guess what Baal slash Hadad was the God of. I shouldn't say you'll never guess. Have a guess <laughs> what you think he was the God of. Rain. Hadad was the god of storms and rain. And because of that, he was the protector of life and fertility, which makes sense, because without rain, you have no grain. Without grain, you have no muscle gain. And if you have no gain, then you have pain. And then death. <laughs> you couldn't buy the last one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, brain. Malfunction. I don't know. Elijah, what we're reading in verse 1 here is, is this question is, well, who, who is the one who can really control the storms and the rain in the world? It ain't Hadad. It's not the Baals that Ahab has been led to worship by his Sidonian wife Jezebel. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord, the one true God. And so for each of us, as we enter this story, and as we think about what it means for us, this is the most important question. This is the, the foundational thing that we need to grasp right from the beginning. Do I worship the one true God? He is all-powerful. He has no equal. He has no character flaws. He never loses. And everything that he says he'll do, he will do. Whether that's from the, the first words that he spoke that gave life to the universe in Genesis 1-3, whether it's the words, it is finished, that Jesus uttered on the cross in John 19-30, whether it's God saying in the new creation in Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. Everything the Lord says happens. What he says he will do, he will do. And that brings us to point two. There's only one God, and that one God speaks. And we should obey, listen, and obey. In our passages today, this God, the Lord, He speaks. And when He speaks, what happens? Well, I've already given that answer, haven't I? What He says happens. God spoke to Elijah, and Elijah in turn told Ahab what God had said. There will be a severe drought. And there is. And yet we discover that it wasn't simply that, uh, you know, the Tishbite was just kind of hanging out in Gilead, and then suddenly God hit him with this message to go. No, actually what we discover when we read James 5.17 is that Elijah was actually a man in prayer. He prayed. So 1 Kings 17, 1 doesn't actually tell us this, but God reveals this truth to us through James. And now it's important to be clear about something here. You see, sometimes people take uh, James 5 and they, and they say, well, look, hey, as long as I pray fervently about something, then I should be able to see incredible and even miraculous things, like a drought that lasts three and a half years. But remember what we just said about God. 
Elijah's not the one with power, and nor is he the one who is calling the shots. You notice Elijah's posture before God in verse 1. What does he say? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. See, he believes the truth of his own name. He believes that only the Lord is God. That Elijah is not God. And so when Elijah says, uh, no, no rain or dew shall come, this is going to be a severe famine, except by my word, he's not trying to say that, that his word is the one that actually has power. He's not saying that, that hey, I, I'm the one who calls the shots here. No, he's, he's saying that God is the one who has the power and he is the one who speaks. And he speaks through Elijah. And that's why he's not afraid of standing before the king to deliver him a message from God that he knows the king is not going to like. And so when you grasp this, it becomes impossible to view James 5 as saying that, you know, if you only just pray fervently enough, you'll be able to make it not rain. No, that's not the point of James 5. The point is that God is, he acts and he speaks in many ways. And one of those ways is through the prayers of his people. It's not like Elijah thought to himself, you know, hey, you know what would be a great judgment for Israel right now? A drought. Let's do that. God, I'm going to ask for it, and you're going to come through, right? No. God spoke, and in this instance, we're not sure whether it was an audible voice, whether Elijah heard that, or whether it was a still small voice, or whether, you know, we don't, we don't know how it happened, but we know that God spoke to Elijah. Elijah listened, he obeyed, and he prayed. As Stephen Lawson says, prayer does not change God's will, it submits to it. God speaks to Ahab through Elijah, sending him this very clear message. You are about to receive judgment for your idolatry in the form of this drought. Israel is going to be dry as a bone. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Ahab's immediate response to this word from the Lord is. You notice that? He's just like, uh, Elijah speaks to Ahab, and then that's all we hear of him. But we know from later on in the story that pretty clearly that he, he obviously doesn't think the Lord is God, and he clearly doesn't think that this is a word from him either. Otherwise, he would have repented and would have turned to the Lord. Elijah, on the other hand, as we've already seen, he doesn't respond that way. He continues to listen to the word of the Lord. This is so important for us to grasp. When we hear the word of the Lord, do we harden or do we soften? The Lord speaks again to Elijah, this time directing him to the brook Cherith, Cherith, where God will miraculously provide for him. Now, some interpreters have tried to suggest uh, natural interpretations for this provision, like saying that you know, ravens gathered food and stored it so Elijah could you know, raid their cupboards. Uh, or that the word for ravens uh, it could actually be translated as black Arabs. Uh, 
aside from the fact that the, uh, the context and the grammar don't give strong support for either of those readings, those interpretations miss the point. They're looking for a natural explanation, which is totally against what, what the text is communicating to us. In the same way that God miraculously provided for Israel with manna and quail in the wilderness, which we read about in Exodus 15. So now God provides miraculously for his prophet. The ravens bring him bread and meat twice a day, and he drinks water from the brook. Not even the birds of the air are outside of God's dominion. He knows and commands them. The Lord is God. And so when he speaks, we should listen. Now eventually the brook dries up, so the Lord tells Elijah to go to Zarephath, which is in the land of Sidon. Jezebel's country. Uh, but we're going to look at that next week. So uh, we're going to skip over that section today and we're going to fast forward to what happens after that. Let's jump down to chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So three and a half years later, God speaks to Elijah again. And he sends him to Ahab again, this time with the news that he will open up the heavens and send rain. As we read in verse 2, the famine has been really, really bad. And so how does Elijah respond to his command? Once again, with obedience. Elijah gets up, he goes with the purpose of showing himself to Ahab. And here in this story, we're introduced to somebody who is one of the very few good guys left in Israel. His name is Obadiah. Does anybody know an Obadiah? I don't. Now, you may know that one of the books of the Bible is Obadiah. Uh, that's something that I learned at an early age because for whatever reason, I knew lots of semi-useless facts. And one of them was, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And that's why I knew who he was. Well, so I can uh, save you some trouble and confusion that I had in this passage, uh, let me tell you that this is a different Obadiah to that Obadiah. This is not Obadiah the prophet. This is Obadiah uh, who works and lives in Ahab's household. And so we see in verse 3 that uh, Obadiah was obviously an important person. Perhaps he was a little bit like Joseph in Pharaoh's household, which we read about in Genesis, over all of Pharaoh's things, able to administer and do what he needs to do. A little bit like an administrator for a CEO. Something like that. And so the text tells us right here, right under Ahab's nose, was someone who genuinely followed God. He feared the Lord greatly, verse 3 says, so much so that he was willing to risk his neck in defiance of Jezebel so that he could save the lives of a hundred prophets. And so here we have Obadiah and Ahab trying to find water and grass throughout the land to try and keep their horses and mules alive. 
It's obviously so bad that, that they're losing horses and mules due to the lack of food and water. Now, interestingly, to give you another historical tidbit, uh, we have a record of Shalmaneser, Shalmaneser III, who was king of Assyria around this time. And he mentions King Ahab in his own records, but not in a good way. Now, he mentions because uh, Ahab actually joined a coalition of forces against Shalmaneser, and he provided them with 2,000 chariots. Uh, and so as Braden mentioned earlier, again, here is Ahab depending not on the Lord, but on his own military might. Trusting not in the Lord, but in what he could try and do to secure his nation. And so as we see the, uh, Ahab and Obadiah trying to find water and food for these horses and mules, it's quite possible that that is actually what he's doing. He's, he's worried, he's nervous about the fact that the things that he has trusted in are about to be gone. And we read in Deuteronomy 17, 16, that this is something that the kings were not supposed to do. Acquiring horses, trusting in their own might. And so these, these little glimpses show us how truly far Ahab has fallen from the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't recognize the Lord as the one true God. He doesn't listen to him. He doesn't obey him. And he certainly doesn't trust That's why he did more evil than all the other kings before him. And so he and Obadiah part ways, which gives us an opportunity to see an interaction between Obadiah and Elijah. Obadiah recognizes him. Uh, again, we don't know how, perhaps from his um, prophety kind of look. And he comes before him, he bows, bows before Elijah. And Elijah gives him the instruction to pass on the message. Seems simple at first enough, at, at first, doesn't it? Simple at first. Hey, Obadiah, the Lord has spoken. Let Ahab know that I'm here. And now here we see how Ahab has actually hardened his own heart. Obadiah informs Elijah, tells him what the king has been doing all this time, these years that Elijah has not been around. You'd think that years of drought and the resulting famine would make Ahab think to himself, hmm, maybe Elijah really is a true prophet. Maybe the Lord actually is God. You'd think that that's what he would do. But no, instead he went in search of Elijah as far and as wide as he possibly could to try and smoke him out. Went to all the surrounding neighboring countries and cities. He's so desperate to find him that he makes every place that he visits make an oath. He tells them, you, you tell me that he's not here. I, I mean, it's really a threat, isn't it? He's, he's really saying, if I find out that Elijah was here all along and you were hiding him, I am going to come back after you. This is what Obadiah fears. Ahab is gunning for Elijah so much that he knows that if he says to him, hey, I found Elijah, and then he can't produce him, 
that the king will kill him in a rage. The king has hardened his heart against the Lord and against his word. Obadiah's concern isn't that he needs to deliver this message, but that it would be a suicide mission if God takes Elijah somewhere else. And so it's possible that this is perhaps Obadiah maybe wavering in his faith. But ultimately, we see Obadiah's fear of the Lord, which again, we, that's how the, the text has described him. We see how his fear of the Lord ultimately outweighs his fear of man and even death. Because as soon as Elijah assures him that that won't happen, we see in verse 16, Obadiah trusts his word. And he trusts the Lord's word and delivers the message to Ahab. As a side note, if you ever struggle with being afraid of others, being afraid of people, the way to deal with that is to fear the Lord more than anyone else. Ultimately, Obadiah knows the Lord enough to know that sin has consequences. Have a look at verse 9. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? What have I done that that deserves this, this message, which is basically me marching to my death? You know, I said last week that uh, not all sickness and death and trouble is a direct result of sin. The Bible clearly teaches that. But certainly some of it is, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 last week, and that has been true since the beginning. Obadiah recognizes this, and perceiving what the consequences might be, he assumes that perhaps he's done something wrong that is now bringing God's judgment on him. You know, our sensitivity to our own sin and its consequences is something that is sometimes lost in contemporary Christianity. Now, to some extent, this is a good thing because, as the Bible teaches in many places, like in Romans 5.1, we are justified by faith and not by works. And so for us to keep trying to save ourselves by being good enough or or doing enough good is, is not going to give us peace with God. It only comes through turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. You know, doing some good uh, to your friends or to your neighbor or to your spouse, uh, you know, that might buy you a, a bit of peace. But that isn't enough to buy you peace with God. And yet, once we have been justified by faith, that is, once we have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ and been declared righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, well, God then sanctifies us. Then for the rest of our days that we live in existence in this physical body, in this world, God continues to change our hearts so that we desire sin less and so that we fight sin more. And we pursue living rightly before God as we look to Jesus. As Christians, we're neither condemned by our sin and nor do we go on 
loving it. We're neither condemned by our sin, nor do we go on loving it. Instead, we recognize sin for what it is. It is our trouble. And that brings us to point three. There's only one God, that one God speaks, and our trouble is sin. There's a great Instagram account called Wrecked Wretch, and they sell merchandise. One of them is a hoodie that says, our problem is sin. I was going to bring that up, but it's the wrong word, so now I've just done it anyway. Our trouble is sin. Let's read verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Can you see the difference between Obadiah and Ahab? Obadiah is sensitive to his sin. He recognizes that the Lord is just and that he carries out judgment on sin. But Ahab, the king who has done the greatest evil in the whole history of the kings of Israel, he can't even see it. He takes one look at Elijah. He remembers when three and a half years ago he first made the announcement of the drought. And rather than consider that perhaps maybe I should listen to this guy, all he thinks is, aha, here's the troublemaker. Here's the the messenger that gave me that message. You're the source of it. Elijah, you are the source of all our troubles. It's you. You troubler of Israel. How does Elijah respond? Verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah makes it unmistakably clear to Ahab where the problem lies. Ahab is the one who abandoned God. Ahab is the one who abandoned the commandments and didn't do what the king was supposed to do in leading the nation in obedience to the Lord. Instead, Ahab has led them into idolatry, into following false gods. Now, of course, we know that narrative, don't we? We know that Ahab is evil and we know that he has committed these heinous sins before God and that he is the reason why Israel is being judged. So it would be easy for us to scoff at him and find it hard to believe that, you know, how could someone be so thick? How how can you have three and a half years of drought and then think to yourself that, that you're not the problem? That the prophet who prophesied correctly something which is just ridiculous... That it's, it's, it's like he's able to command effectively the, the, um, you know, the, the cycles of rain and storm. 
how can you be so, so not self-aware to miss the fact that, that clearly, this is the Lord speaking, clearly He is the Lord, the God of all the universe. And yet how easily our own hearts fall into the same pit. When you're experiencing trouble, when life is hard, when things get difficult, how readily do you consider that perhaps the source of your trouble is your own sin? How willing are you to consider that perhaps the troubles that you are experiencing right now are because of sin in your life? The other side of this coin, of course, is how quickly do you assume that the source of your trouble is someone or something else? Or perhaps even God himself. How quickly do we do an Ahab? It's not hard to do. It is, after all, our own sin that causes us to look for other sources of trouble that are outside of ourselves. It's a problem as old as the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 records how Adam should have been protecting and reminding his wife of what God had instructed them to do. And after they take of the fruit from the tree of knowledge and disobey God, what does he do? After God exposes their sin, what does Adam do? Surely the, especially the wives, but the women. He blames Eve. And not only does he blame Eve, what else does he do? He tries to indirectly blame God. Genesis 3.12 says, The woman whom you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. You see, in Adam's mind, when it comes to the source of his troubles, he's third in line. God, you gave me the woman, and then she gave me the fruit. Even even though I was there the whole time, I didn't put a stop to it. Uh, No, I'm I'm the recipient here of other people's bad choices, including you. And of course, Eve does the same. She goes on to blame the serpent. This is the nature of our sin. When our trouble comes from our own sin, we are prone and ready to look elsewhere first 
before looking to ourselves to find the source of our trouble. Where's the first place you look when you smell a dead rat? Now, of course, other trouble does come to us from others' sin. I'm certainly not trying to suggest that all of our troubles come from our own sin. There are other people who sin, and we experience the consequences of that. The the fall also uh, damaged all of creation, and so we experience the consequences of that. And so if, if a cyclone wipes out your house or if you get bitten by a brown snake or somebody gossips against you, I'm not suggesting that you need to then go and look for the cause of that in your own life. But that instinct, that first instinct of looking outside of ourselves for the source of all our trouble is surely one that we all share. Let me give you some examples. One from my own life that is a live issue right now is that I, I feel discontent about the fact that I would love to, being, love to be doing more with music. Some of you know I, I love music. Uh, I would love to. It's been a dream of mine for decades to be able to write songs for our church and think that this would be a great way, this would be a good use of my spare time in service to the Lord and to His people. And yet, I feel like the demands of being a husband and a father and a pastor push all my extra time and headspace out so so that I can't actually devote meaningful time to it. And I think in my heart, God, if you could just give me more time, if you could just give me more more energy and, and brain space, you know, I would love to do this for you and for your church. And then I waste my time watching YouTube videos about stingrays eating crabs, reading articles that I don't need to read, especially late at night when I should be in bed asleep. That problem is birth of my own sin. I have enough hours in the day. Now, yes, there's a place for downtime and unwinding, etc. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about wasteful, sinful decisions that I make with how I use my time. Do I eventually feel the conviction of that and repent and seek God's help? Yes, absolutely, I do but clearly not enough for me to stop doing it completely. I'm still working that out. I'm still fighting that sin. And I seek the Spirit's help by His grace. Let me give you some other brief, more generic examples. A Christian wonders why they're not growing, but never seeks to build in good spiritual habits of daily prayer and Bible reading. And when they fail at that, they they don't search their heart to realize that the reason they don't do it is because they, they idolize other things and therefore put more energy into those things instead. And then in their pride, they choose not to lean on the very people that God has given them to grow in this, to encourage them in it, to help them in it, to, to keep them accountable in it. 
Instead, they, they rationalize that, you know, the, I'll eventually get there. I'll eventually get there. And, you know, God is gracious uh, and, and say all of these things as an excuse for their spiritual lethargy. A husband wonders why his home life is such a struggle when he hasn't thought about the fact that he's put his work before his wife. Sure, he, he might carry, get carried away with work hours sometimes, but, but God, you, you, get, you gave me this, you gave me this job. Isn't this what you want me to do with my life? A parent gets angry at their children, thinking that, you know, if, if these little, wonderful, beautiful children that you gave me would just listen, if they would just listen, then we would have more peace in this household. They haven't realized that their own anger arises from their own sin. Yes, it might be inflamed by difficult children, but at the root, it stems from a dissatisfied heart that keeps placing worldly concerns over godly ones. A child gets angry at their parents because they assume that their parents don't care about them at all. All they want to do is boss them around without seeing in their own heart a desire to disobey God by rebelling against the very parents that God has given them. You see, too quickly we move from recognizing trouble to blaming God or others as being the source of that trouble. Too quickly we go from smelling the rat to looking in God's house or other people's houses to see whether it's there. And far too slowly do we consider that perhaps us and our sin is the source of that trouble. Could it be that some of the trouble that you are experiencing in your life right now is a result of your own sin? Could it be that that dead rat is in your house? And if so, what will you do with that? Will you eliminate the source? Well, that's a good question to ask, isn't it? Okay, uh, I recognize that my trouble comes from my own sin. Now what? Do I put on some motivational music and try to keep the commandments better? I can do it. I, I, I just got to think positively and I can turn this around. Well, as the beginning of an answer to that, let me remind you of the three points I've given so far. Firstly, there's only one God. 
It's not a contest. Baal and all his mates, they are powerless. God's even more powerful than Superman, and he doesn't have kryptonite. And this matters because our sin ultimately is an offense against him. Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Secondly, this one God speaks. He's not dumb. He hasn't left you guessing what he's like. He's not vague about what he demands from you. And this is why we know these things about him and about us because he has revealed them to us in his word. And one of the key things that we need to know about ourselves that he has revealed is that thirdly, our trouble is sin. Like Ahab, we have failed to keep God's commandments perfectly and are therefore deserving of punishment, of judgment. You know, in many ways, these three points actually summarize the story of the Bible. But if I was to just leave it at those three points, then it would be a rather hopeless message, wouldn't it? Why would anyone want to know about that? Why would anyone want to do that? I mean, who, who cares if the Lord is God? Who cares if He speaks? If He doesn't give me an answer to my trouble, then what good is He? Well, hallelujah. He does give us an answer. The story of the Bible doesn't end with simply pointing to the source of our trouble, simply pointing out that we are the source. No, God gives us an answer to our trouble, and He Himself is the answer, which brings us to our final point, which every person who has been in church since they were a child knows. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. You see, so far I've been talking about trouble with regard to our life circumstances whether that's a situation that we're finding difficult, whether it's emotions that we're struggling with, whether it's bad things happening to us. But there is a trouble that is far worse and far more permanent than any of those things. Because the trouble of our sin, it it doesn't just visit us in this life. We pay for it in the next. You know, ironically, though Ahab thought Elijah was the troubler of Israel... Ahab himself was the real troubler of Israel. Interestingly, though, Ahab is actually not the first troubler of Israel. He wasn't the OG troubler of Israel. In Joshua 7, before Israel even had a king, we read about Achan. Achan sinned greatly by disobeying God's commands regarding the devoted things, And as a result, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And as judgment, they were humiliatingly defeated in their next battle. Achan actually became so notorious for this huge mistake, for this great sin, that he went down in history as Achan, the troubler of Israel. That's what 1 Chronicles 2.7 describes him as. Achan's sin resulted in judgment on Israel and God's anger burned against the people of Israel. In the same way that Ahab's sin 
resulted in God's anger burning against the Israelites, so Achan's sin did the same. So what did Israel need to do? They needed to deal with the source of their trouble. Joshua 7, 25 tells us, the people said that to him, why do you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And they stoned him with stones. Ahab, Achan received God's just punishment for his sin. And verse 26 tells us that the Lord turned from his burning anger. And in that place where judgment was enacted on Achan, they named it the Valley of Achor. Do you know why they called the place the Valley of Achor? Because Achor is the Hebrew word for trouble. You and I deserve hell for our sin. Our abandonment of God and His commandments is brought to justice through God's burning anger in hell. And this is because you and I are in Adam, as Romans 5 tells us. And so death has come to us because of Him. see, Adam, as the head of the human race, is just like the king of Israel. In his sin, we suffer the consequences of our sin. But you know what God has done? He has sent his one and only son, who lived a life totally free of sin. As Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, which our kids learnt in Praise Factory last week, that Jesus was tempted as we are and yet was without sin. He came down from heaven to earth and he went down into the cosmic valley of Achor so that he might receive the penalty for sin. Not his sin. For he was perfect. But our sin. Jesus went to the cross and received the penalty of God's righteous burning anger for our sin so that by turning from our sin, each of us can believe in him and be saved and receive Jesus' sacrifice for our salvation. As Romans 5, 18 and 19 tell us, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, for all people, the sin of Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, for all people in Jesus. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The only hope that we have to be freed from our trouble is Jesus Christ himself. By turning and by trusting in him, we exchange Adam as our head for Jesus so that we are no longer in Adam, but that we are in Christ. And instead of receiving the penalty for our sin in Adam, we instead receive salvation from sin in Christ. The answer to our trouble is Jesus Will you look to him today? Will you turn from worshipping the idols and the false gods of our world and of your own heart? And will you trust in him alone? You see, as we look to him, we find hope in our circumstances knowing that we are in Him. As we identify sin in our own lives and as we seek to put it to death, as we turn from our idols, as we worship the one true God with our whole hearts, with our whole lives, we do it not under condemnation for our sin, not because we're afraid of God's punishment, but we do it because we know that we are in Christ and He has justified us And he continues to sanctify us by his grace. Can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. You see, it's not enough, as I discovered, to just smell a dead rat. You need to find the source of it and get rid of it. There's only one God that one God speaks. And his word tells us that the source of our trouble is our sin and that our trouble goes far beyond problems in life but into eternity. And there is only one answer. And that answer is Jesus. Will you bring your trouble to him? For in him is salvation, sanctification, and peace forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we hear your word. Father, may we not harden our hearts. Please, by your spirit, be at work in us. So that we may 
might identify the source of our trouble and run to the solution, to the answer. Our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.